Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who has not been beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath has left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. This section is opens up into a, a sort of a difficult passage to understand. Many commentators, almost all of them, start out with this is the hardest section of scripture to preach on. Um, so I've been wrestling all week. It's been a, a wrestling match with God. I've not slept much because my mind is going uh, this last service, I think, got more than they asked for, and hopefully I can uh, not tone it down, but, but get it out in a more palatable way, this service. Uh, but as I prepare for this text, sort of two thoughts sort of come up in my mind, and they're both relating to swimming. I, I love swimming. I've always been a, a water person, and I, I remember as a kid just dominating the swimming pool. I could swim all around it. I could swim to the bottom, I could swim to the top, I could swim to the back and the front and the sides. I could see everywhere in the pool. I knew that I was on top of the food chain. It was very comfortable. I could be there day or night, no fear of beast. Then as I got older and I started going into the ocean and surfing, I, things started to change. I couldn't see the end. I couldn't see the bottom. I, I no longer felt like I was on the top of the food chain. And it got worrisome. This 
feeling grew and grew and grew. And then I be, as I became a Navy SEAL, I was exposed to more and more of the ocean that I really felt like, man, I am really not on the top of the food chain here. And it, it peaked at some point. I was in the Navy. I was on a ship out in the middle of the ocean. And the commanding officer of the ship said, hey, we got a SEAL team with us. Let's have a swim call like they used to do in the old days. So they just stopped the ship out in the middle of the ocean. They got a couple guys with shotguns to sort of stand watch. I think for sharks, I don't really know. And they said, go swimming, boys. I didn't really want to go swimming. But we had a sort of a reputation to maintain. So I went swimming. And there's something different about swimming out in the middle of the ocean where you can't see anything in any direction, your mind can go wild. Watch all the weeks watching Shark Week and Jaws and I don't even know where the bottom is. I could swim as far as I can and I won't hit the bottom. I have no idea what's down there. In some ways, the text feels like that to me. There's so much here and I don't know where the bottom is and I feel like I'm only getting a small picture of what's being said in this section of Romans. And as I prepare for one text, I know the next text that's coming that I'm not ready to like wrap my mind around that, which is a second illustration from swimming. When I swam competitively for years, when you would train, you would kind of race the clock during a workout. The coach would say, okay, you've got to do 10 100s and you have a minute to do every rotation so you would start the first time you'd have 15 seconds before you had to start again then as you got into your sets then it seemed like that distance got shorter and shorter and shorter to where you'd get back and you'd already be three seconds late leaving for the the next cycle and it would just compound itself and so i feel like with romans i'm like man i got so many questions i know what's coming here but i don't have time to start studying romans 11 because i've got to master romans 9 and so there's some tension in my brain. One person came up to me after the last service and said, man, we were drowning for 30 minutes of it. And then the last 15 minutes, you made it all come clear. Why couldn't you just start there? I'm like, well, I need you to get confused with me so that we can, we can work out of this. We can work out of this hole together. And so before we get into Romans 9, because of last week, I, I, I want to sort of review Romans as we enter into this this special section of Romans. And so we know from Romans that it's written by Paul the Apostle. He's writing to a group of believers in Rome. This church in Rome was not established by any apostle. There were a group of Jewish believers or just Jewish people who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Then the spirit came, the church was formed, they witnessed it. They, they saw and heard the things of Christ, and they believed in the Messiah as Lord. They left Jerusalem, heading back to Rome, and a, and a church formed in Rome of made up of Jewish people. The church began to flourish. Uh, people heard about them. As they grew, it was led or spearheaded by the Jewish believers. Gentiles were invited in, of course, but the Jewish people outnumbered the, the Gentiles, Claudius was in control and things were going well. Eventually, what happened is the Jewish believers started sharing Christ with their non-Jewish friend or their their non-believing Jewish friends, if that makes sense. Tensions started to arise within the Jewish uh, people over who was Christ. Claudius wanted no rebellion in his city. So eventually, what he did was is he kicked all of the Jews, both Christians, Jews, and non-believing Jews. He kicked them out of Rome. And so the church became 100% Gentile and started to flourish. As the Gentile church was flourishing, separated from its Jewish roots, a thought began to creep in that still exists today in many churches, namely that God was done with Israel and he'd replaced Israel with the church. Today, this is called replacement theology, which I don't think there's any basis in scripture for replacement theology. Paul saw this problem. This problem began to grow and to cause greater tension as Claudius was poisoned 
and Nero came to reign. As Nero came to reign, the Jewish believers and all of the Jewish people were allowed back into Rome. But as they came back, you now have a, a smaller contingent of Jewish believers within the church. The Gentiles had said, God's, God's rejected Israel. It's now the church. And tension was growing. And so this was a, a, a main point that Paul was writing to these believers in Rome that, that we have the Romans from. As we look at Romans, as we go through Romans, when we eventually get to Romans 12 through 16, the, the practical sort of application uh, of things, that doctrine results in certain practices. He responds differently in Romans than he does in all of his other books, in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these letters to churches. He almost always addresses issues of how does the gospel manifest itself in, in the marriage union between husband and wife? How is a husband to relate to his wife? How is a wife to relate to her husband? How are children to relate to their parents? How are parents to relate to their, their kids? How are you supposed to, to, to go about life in the workplace? How are you supposed to act towards your boss? If you're a boss, how are you supposed to act towards your employees? In Romans, he doesn't address any of that stuff. He addresses stuff like, you can get meat that's been sacrificed to an idol for pennies on the dollar. Should we eat that meat? To the Gentiles, they'd say, of course. Of course we would. Why? What's the big deal if it's been sacrificed to an idol? Why would I, why would I pay $10 for a tri-tip when I can get it for a buck? It's the same meat. The Jewish person, this was terribly insensitive. Their, their conscience wouldn't allow for it. What about holidays and feasts that the Jewish people cared about? The Gentiles wouldn't care about that. How do we work these things out? What about the Roman authority that was over us, the government that we have to submit to? The Gentiles would take one stance. The Jews would take another stance. These are the issues that, that Paul begins to address in the application at the end of Rome, at the end of Romans. The conflict that would arise in a church that was divided between uh, different backgrounds of people. And so as he introduces himself to these believers in Rome, the first point he makes in Romans chapter 1 through 323 is basically that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He makes his case that amongst sinners, which all people are sinners, there are some sinners that are really bad. There are some sinners that are good sinners, not meaning that they're good at sinning, but that they're morally righteous people. There are religious sinners. There are people who have acts of faith that they've they grew up in synagogue, yet they are still sinners. He lays everything out that all people at the foot of the cross are sinful. We've fallen short of the glory of God. From there, Paul begins to explain at the end of chapter three. And chapter four, how a person that's separated from God because of their sinfulness. We have a holy, righteous God. We have people that are not. We sin because we're sinners. We are separate from God. How do we bridge this gap? And he begins to show that it's always been by God's grace. And it's acted upon through faith. The Jewish person would sort of pull back. What do you mean? What about the law? What about all the ordinances? What about everything that we do? And so Paul goes to, to Abraham, and in Romans chapter 4, he shows from the Old Testament how even Abraham, he acted in relationship with God through faith, that his righteousness was credited to him. It was God declaring that he was righteous, not that he was righteous. It was declared that he was righteous because he responded in faith to God, and it's always been that way. As we enter into Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to share about what does the justified person's life look like? And he starts that if you've been justified, it comes through faith. And when you've been justif justified, meaning that God has declared you just before him, not that you're not a sinner, not that you will never sin again, but that God declares you justified by his grace because you've had faith in Christ. It says that we no longer are at enmity with God, that we have peace with God. And then he begins to explain all of this. And as he explains the justified life, as every pastor, as every person who has been walking with the Lord, as they talk to a new convert, one of the greatest fears is that the person will slip back into their old way of life. 
that they won't experience the freedom that's in Christ, the new life that's there. And so in these two camps, this is a new thought that the more I think about it, the more this last three weeks I've been talking to all my my pastor buddies, you know, through text message. Hey, do you think I'm a heretic because I see it this way? They're like, no, no, no. I've just went through Romans and I'm thinking the same thing. And so Romans chapter six sort of carries the thought that the Gentile believer, their propensity after they become a, a Christian, the way that they would slip back into the flesh was to license to sin and that they'd go back to their old lifestyle of just following the flesh. And Paul begins that section. What shall we say then? Will grace, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. Then as he starts Romans chapter seven, the first few verses there, he then addresses those under the law. The Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ, their flesh, the way that they would retract back to their flesh would be to go back into religion and works and this whole system. And from this, this propensity to slip back under the law, identified with paul or paul identified with that it struck a chord in his heart and he gets very transparent most of chapter seven is paul saying this is my struggle am i saying that the the law is bad he's like of of course not he's like praise be to god if if the law didn't tell me not to see i always want to say lust but it wasn't lust um envy envy covet yeah see it's covetousness He says, you know, the lost said not to covet. And then because it said not to covet, I see how much I covet. And not only does it expose coveting in my heart, what it does is it draws it out of me. It says don't covet. So all I do is look. And I don't know what Paul was looking at. Maybe guys had better set of the Torah. I don't know. Maybe they had better like tassels. I don't know like what it was in Paul that like that all he wanted, he coveted this. And he just ends with this this tension that there's. There's a struggle within us because when we accept Christ, when the spirit comes, our old nature remains and the new nature comes and they're at war with one another. We have roommates that hate each other within us and it's a battle. And he climaxes in Romans chapter eight. Our hope is in the spirit walking with him, allowing him to guide us. This great climax in verses 37 through 39 of Romans chapter eight, where he basically says, but in all these things, we owe We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beautiful. I mean, you could, they really should have put like 17 exclamation points following that. This is like the crescendo of Romans 1 through 8. It's beautiful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now there's tension in this church. Some address, and I'm from the school of camp, and I, and I see it, but I don't see it. I'm at, I'm at war within. <laughs> that say Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a parenthetical statement within Romans. That, that Paul goes on this tangent and he addresses these things but but really you could almost just take these three chapters out set them aside as important and just carry on with romans 12 1 maybe they'd almost want to put this in the appendix of romans and i and, and that's going that's going too extreme i mean that's real but it just doesn't fit with the flow of thought but if you go to romans 12 1 with this great exclamation point that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We've told you, or he's told us, all of this great doctrine. Romans 12.1 just makes sense. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, I would almost translate that reasonable, your reasonable service of worship. Since Christ has done all of this for you, it's reasonable that you give your life to him as an offering. It just makes sense. But then how do we understand why does Paul write Romans 9, 10, and 11? Why does the spirit lead him in this direction? And I think to understand this, we need to see the tension within the Roman church. The Gentiles and the Jewish believers 
at a point of almost forming two different churches that you have the Jewish church and you have the Gentile church. We are one in Christ. This is a, this is a major thing. And if, and if God has replaced Israel with the church, we have problems. And Paul is, a, of all Jews, is, I don't want to say he's the most Jewish, but he has a pedigree of, of, of Judaism. That, that, that he was one of the leading up-and-coming scholars to lead the Jewish people. As a young boy, he was trained in the promises of God. And I believe that there's a, a problem in his mind that he needs to address. And he begins with the first five verses, address sort of the problem of, that Romans 9 through 11 is addressing, if that makes sense. This is, this is at his core, why he's writing all of these chapters. And he begins with this, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He begins with this transparency, this, this heaviness of heart. Each chapter of 9, 10, and 11 begin with Paul's heart sort of opening up and, and laying out with great transparency the heart behind his writing. He doesn't tell us what the problem is, but he uses... The picture of this unceasing grief in his heart. This, this word for grief is a rare word. That would be a word that would, would, would be used to describe a, a parent who had lost a child in death. That sort of agony and pain and sorrow. He doesn't tell us at this point what's causing the sorrow. He doesn't get there until verse 6. But he continues to describe his sorrow. And he says, for I could wish. He's not saying that he could actually do this. But he's saying, if I could do this, this is what I would wish. And this is sort of my prayer to the Lord. That I myself were cursed, separated from Christ. Can this happen? The answer is no. We just, the very end of Romans 8, he said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's, there's nothing. But, but he's saying this burden is so great that, that if I could, I would offer to be separated from Christ, that I would go to hell for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Man, this is, this is Christ. I confessed last week that, man, for my... My family members, my neighbors, I don't have this. I mean, I want to sit here and say, oh, I have this total attitude. I'm, I'm at night laying awake all night. I'm a really good pastor and Christian. I just, every night I say, Lord, I would lose my salvation if I could save every single person on my street, our whole community, all my family member. <laughs> but the reality is, is I, 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 God has a lot of work to do in me. And I'm convicted that, Lord, put this same sort of, compassion give me your eyes that i would see people not through my flesh but through your spirit that i would be broken like this and then when he mentions the israelites look at what he says about them to whom belongs the adoption of sons if we would go back to romans chapter 8 verse 15 he just mentioned this remember that that passage where he says for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. All of us, male or female, if you're in Christ, you've been adopted as a son because it has everything to do with inheritance and family right, that we have full entitlement in the family of God in Christ. By which we cry out, Daddy, Papa, Abba, Father. This is an intimate uh, way of addressing uh, an earthly father. Little kids in Israel today, they run around and when they see their dad, they say, Abba, Abba, Abba. And Paul's saying that in Christ, we have this intimate relationship with the creator of the universe that we can cry out, Abba, Father. But he, back in Romans chapter 9, when he talks to the, about the Israelites, he says that belongs to them. That they were the ones, the firstborn, the chosen. 
and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. He lists all of these great things that God chose Israel for. We as Gentile believers in this day and age. I want to find the exact right page because I don't want to misrepresent anything here. We tend to exclude the Old Testament. And last week I held up the Old Testament, which I'm trying to do again today. But this is the divide. That's the Old Testament. And we Gentile believers, we might not say it, but in essence what we do is we try to tear the Bible in half and we only hold to this side. And we rob ourselves of so much. We miss so much. Because the New Testament, guys, is Jewish. I hate to break it. We need to see that the New Testament is a Jewish book. There was one non-Jewish author, and that's Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. Everything else is Jewish. Everything flows from the Old Testament and is a part of the Old Testament. And the more we understand God's dealing with Israel and the, and the people of the world through the Old Testament, the greater understanding we have of the New Testament. And so Paul, when he speaks of his, his fellow brother and the Israelites, the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, we owe a great debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. The great work that they went through to preserve the holy word of God that was revealed to us. That today you can go to Israel and stand outside of the Dead Dead Sea at, of course, I'm blanking on the name right now. I had it. It just went away where you could throw rocks into the Qumran. And in 1947, those little shepherd boys throw in rocks. They hear a breaking of a clay pot. And so like little boys do, what was that? They run to the clay pots and they see what's in there. They discover all of these writings. They basically... Take what they found, give it to the right people, and scholars begin going through the stuff. And the amazing thing about what they found is really what they didn't find. These these writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls as we refer to them, found in 1947, had been there since before Christ. That these zealous Jews isolated themselves to preserve the word of God, that they, they, they cared for them. And so modern scholars today would say, oh, the Bible's corrupted. You can't trust it. How can you say that the Old Testament that we have today is the same that we have back then? Well, do you know what they didn't find in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Mistakes. No mistakes. The word of God, like Isaiah, with all of these great prophecies, especially Isaiah 53, which most Jewish people today will refuse to talk to you about. It was there. Scholars on the the liberal side will say, oh, that was inserted after Christ because it's far too accurate to really be there. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls changed everything. The giving of the law, the glory, the covenants. How special is that? The the temple service. I don't know if Paul worked in the temple or he, I mean, as a young boy, longed to work in the temple. Maybe I would draw the lot that one time. The one time of the year, the Super Bowl, where you could go once into the holiest of holies as a high priest. And then finally, he gets to in verse five, basically saying concerning the Messiah. That Jesus was a Jew, that he was an Israelite, that his DNA followed. Listen to what it says. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. We see movies today. If you watch anything where Jesus is in, like of the gospel period, you'll see a guy that looks like Fabio with blonde hair flowing in a white robe. Jesus is Jewish. He's not Swedish. He's Jewish. <laughs> he is a Jew. Totally and completely. He came through God's promised people or the people with a promise. And Paul gets to the problem in verse six. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the this is the problem that needs to be addressed in these three chapters, because if God has replaced Israel with the church, that means God has gone back on his word. 
Months ago, I, I embarrassed Larry and I, I, I reenacted the Abrahamic covenants up here. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, if you go back to Genesis 12 through 15, you'll see that God tells Abraham in that section. See, now my maybe I'm saying the wrong verse, but it's in Genesis. In the process of making this great covenant where God brought Abraham out to look at the stars and said, as the stars are numbered, that your descendants will be. And Abraham's like, you're crazy. I'm an old man. My wife is numbered in her years. Very gracious, smart man. And he says, not only is that, but she's barren. And you're saying that we're going to have a son. He says, well, if you say it, I'll believe you. I don't know how you're going to do it. And then God made his covenant with him. And he said, hey, go get a couple animals. I I don't want like, I don't know if it was a cow, goat, birds, a couple of them. Abraham sees this. He's like, this isn't good because God's about to enter into a covenant with me. And I don't want to enter into a covenant with me, with him. And what they would do is they'd find a, a hill that, that, came down two hills that came together and formed a valley. You'd split the animals in half. You put one half on one side, one half on the other side. All of the blood would go down to the center and you would basically walk back and forth with the person that you're making the covenant with. And you were essentially saying that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, so be I as his blood is. And the other person was saying, well, if I don't keep my end of it, this is what's going to happen. And Abraham was terrified. But then God put Abraham into a sleep. And when this covenant was made, it was only God walking through these animals' blood. So the covenant was not conditional on Abraham doing anything. It was totally conditional on God's promise. And so now we have a problem here because if the church has replaced Israel, then that means God has defaulted on his word. And so this is what Paul's going at. He's defending the character of God and his nature. And he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And he's addressing these, these Jewish believers saying, did God fail us? What, what happened? How, how did, did we get replaced by the church? And then he gets into this section that, that he's going to describe Israel from God's perspective. We as a people today, we see Israel sort of through I'd say we define Israel three different ways. The first is geographically. You say, okay, there's this region from Egypt up to whatever and over Jordan. That little piece of land, that's Israel. That's one way geographically. That little piece of land is like a hundredth of what God has promised Israel. It doesn't really reflect the land that God has promised his people. So one way is geographically. The second way is a, is a political state, which certainly was, was not at all seen during Paul's time of writing. I, I think they would have seen the land. The political state is Israel in 722 BC was taken captivity. The northern part of the kingdom was taken into captivity. Later in 586 BC, it was taken into captivity, never to exist again until 1948. I think I always get my years wrong. I got it wrong during the last service, but today I'm back on. So, Don, we're good. It saves him splicing of what I say. So, but you're talking over, like, over 2,000 years, Israel doesn't exist as a state. But now we just sort of take Israel for granted. Like, oh, they're just a political nation. They've existed forever. They haven't existed forever. This is recent history. But we see them as a political state, that they have a, a, a president or someone in charge of their parliament, that they, they're, they're negotiating politically over the land. Basically, all of the world is against them. And then they stand and they're making decisions. That's a way we could see Israel. Then the third way that we could see Israel, which I think is how they saw Israel during this time, because Israel was scattered. The people were scattered all over. As we would see it them nationally or through DNA, that they would link themselves back to Abraham to show that they are Israel. And Paul, dealing with this idea, says this. To us who Gentiles, we're like, who cares? What does this matter? But to Paul, it mattered. To the Jews, it mattered. Understanding the history of God's working, it matters. And he says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What is he saying here? Israel came, it was Jacob, Jacob and Esau, twins in the womb, which we're going to look at. God called one over the other. 
Then Jacob lives his life and he eventually towards the end hits sort of his low spot in his life. He wrestles with God all night in the desert. God basically zaps him in the hip, gives him a handicap that he'd suffer with the rest of his life. And at that point, he said, your name's no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. And then he would have 12 sons. If you saw Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcut play, that'll help you kind of like, I don't know how biblically accurate it is, but we see the 12 sons. The 12 sons were known as the 12 tribes of Israel, which also they were known as Israel. And so Paul's saying not all Israel are descended from Israel, going back to Jacob, which this is kind of, this is one of these rough spots in this text that I'm not saying that I have it all figured out. My goal is only to teach what it says and I'm going to deal with some problems, like some not problems, but conflicts in my brain, hopefully in 11, but I, but I, I'm so drowning trying to keep up. I am just going to have to be surprised with the rest of you, how it all works out. (laughs) But what does it say here? So he's saying not all Israel is descended from Israel. So all of Jacob's descendants, if you followed all of Jacob's children, all of his grandchildren, all of his great grandchildren, and so on, he's saying not all of those are Israel. Nor are they all children because of, they are Abraham's descendants. So, so he goes from Jacob and he backs all the way to Abraham. And he said, well, if you go all the way back to Abraham, not all of Abraham's descendants are, also, are Israel. And he goes on to explain, but through Isaac, so he's quoting from Genesis. He's going back to the word of God, back to Genesis. And he says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Still a little bit confusing because you think, okay, so you just follow Abraham. That's saying, go back to Isaac. You take Isaac, you follow all of his kids. That's got to be Israel. Then in verse eight, he says, that is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So we've already from Romans chapter four, he spoke of Abraham and his faith. When we were there, we looked over at Galatians chapter three, Verse 29, I believe. Turn with me there. I didn't turn there during the last service, and I think I did myself a disservice by not going there. So if you'll go with me over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Here Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. This is the tension in the Roman church. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so he's linking descendants of Abraham through faith, not through DNA. Very few of us in this room, you can go back to Romans, could actually like link ourselves through DNA. I know that. You're always proud of your Jewish roots. So, you know, we might have one, we might have more than one, but. Virtually none of us through DNA go back to Abraham that, or that we're aware of. And Paul goes back to this promise of Isaac. What was that story? See, remember, God said, I'm going to give you a son through your wife. That son was Isaac. All of the promises that God gave rested on this child. Then what did God say? As the child grew, as he got older, teenage years likely, he said, hey, I want you to go to a place. I'll... You go up there and then I'm going to have you do a sacrifice, gather all your stuff, take these supplies. He's gathering all the supplies. And the one thing that's missing is the animal that you would normally sacrifice. They go up there. They end up at Jerusalem at Mount Moriah where the dome of the rock is or the, you know, the ark, whatever. I'm blanking. I'm getting my too many files opened up. The dome of the rock, that spot is where he ended up. And as he's about to slay his son, because God said, take your son's life. Abraham said, I don't know what I don't know what you're telling me to do because you've told me that all of your promises are going to come through this child. Yet you're asking me to sacrifice this child. And I don't know what you're doing here, but I know I trust your word. So even if I kill my son, I trust for you to maintain your word. You will raise him from the dead. And he and I don't even know what Isaac was doing at this point. And as he does this. Out of the bushes comes a ram. And God says, there's your sacrifice. Take that. And so we see Abraham's great faith at this point in his life. And through faith, 
There becomes a family through faith. Now back to Romans I'll, before I get distracted and wander off. Verse 9 of Romans. So verse 8, we see that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For, the word, for this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah was Abraham's wife. He's referring back to the promise of their child. And not only this, but there was Rebecca. Now, Rebecca was Isaac's wife. Also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Isaac got Rebecca pregnant. In that pregnancy, there were twins. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so there's two baby boys in her womb. No, they hadn't done anything good. They hadn't done anything bad. They just existed. And in that state of existing, before they did anything right or wrong, middle of verse 11, so that God's purpose, according to his choice or promise, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So while Rebecca is pregnant with these twins, what would happen naturally is that the first male born would be the son of the father that would have all of the rights of inheritance. The second one would have none. While she's pregnant, God says the younger, the older is going to serve the younger. This was a reversal. It, had not, it wasn't because Esau did something wrong in the womb. It wasn't because Jacob did something really good. The reason this happened is because God chose it to be that way. And this whole idea of promise and choice, what Paul is making the point of is that God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants. He is not a puppet for us. He is not a rabbit's foot. He is not a a good luck charm that if we do this, then he's obligated to do that. God is separate from us. God is autonomous. God has free will. He can choose and he can do Whatever he desires. We don't always like that. Paul goes on to make his point. Verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I really don't like. What is up with this? How can God say like Jacob I Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Something just seems wrong about this. And, and before we get going off in a wrong direction, so far, none of anything that's been said has to do with spiritual salvation. I just want to make that clear. This has nothing to do with heaven and hell. This has to do with God choosing certain people for certain things and not choosing certain people for certain things. And then when we use, see the word love and hate, we see this as emotions and feelings. But it's not at all emotions and feelings. He's quoting from Malachi. And in the very beginning of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, as they were scattered, waiting their prophet, no prophet would come until John the Baptist would come some 400 years after Malachi. There's this question between Israel and the Edomites. The Edomites came on the line of Esau. Love and hate was an emotional but uh, emotional thing, but God chose to use Israel in a certain way, and he chose not to use Edomites a certain way. This was expressed in love and hate. If you were to go to Luke 14, verse 26, you would see a, a, a common passage concerning discipleship. Jesus is going down the road. He looks at his disciples, and he says, unless you come after me, And hate your mother and father. Unless one does this, you can't be my disciples. Does that sound familiar? Or did I get ahead of everybody mentally? Larry sat through two services, so he's following. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying, you know, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to, in your, like, seat of emotion, hate your parents. But what he's saying is, if you're my disciple, you, you need to... 
to, to have action in following me. If, you're, if your mother and father are telling you to do something that's conflicting with what I'm telling you to do, your action needs to lie with following me. Love and hate, it has to do with action. Does, this may not make sense. I don't want to dwell on it so much. But, but God's actions seem to lie behind the person he chose, not for salvation, but for service. They were entrusted to do all of these great things. But Paul hears the same resistance that you're feeling in your heart right now. When we start looking at the sovereignty of God, I just don't like it. I like to be in control. I, I want my own little domain. I want to say this is how it's going to be done, this, 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 this way. I want to take control of my life. I want to pull my, my life up by the bootstraps and take charge of things and go. I want to be Bill Gates. I want to be the billionaire. It's not fair. When do our kids learn how to say this? You know, I don't think I've ever taught our, my kids how to say that's not fair, but they just acquired that all by themselves. And as Paul's writing, as he's laying out the sovereignty of God, that God has freedom. God can do whatever he wants. He hears his Jewish brother say, that's not fair. We're the chosen people. We're special. And Paul's about to break it down that they're not special. They serve a special God who's chosen them. Not because they were special, but because God loved them, because he chose. And this is where we get into my finite brain, because I don't know why God did what he did. I only know what he did. He chose them. Verse 14, he says this objection. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's saying, it's just not fair. Why would God do that? And Paul turns to Moses. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. So I get this image of the the Jewish people saying, you can't do this. This isn't fair. It reminds me of when I was a SEAL instructor working at Hell Week. There's a sort of a rumor within the community of those that are trying to become seals that when you go through hell week, which starts on Sunday night and it ends on Friday with four hours total sleep, that if you see the sun on Wednesday morning, they have to roll you forward that you don't have to do hell week again. And one of the hell weeks that I was working, it was like a Wednesday afternoon. There was a, there was a kid who was hurt and we were listening to them. And we can hear them say, oh, just go to medical. They'll just let them roll you out. You can get out of hell week right now. They have to roll you forward. And so then we stop the show. We're like, we have to roll you forward? We do not. And so this kid, like Thursday morning, got rolled. But because he said that, we showed him that we actually have the authority. He has no authority. If he wanted fairness with us, fairness was, was is what he got. He went all the way back to the first day of the first week and he started the whole program over and had to do Hell Week again. It was so fun as an instructor. (laughs) I never heard a student following that say they can't do this because they learned if they we heard this, then that's exactly what we would do to them. And so as they're saying to God, this isn't fair. Paul's like, stop, time out. You don't want fair. You don't want fair. Fair is you're a sinner and you deserve the wrath of God. That's fair. He's like, what you want is mercy. And he tells the story of Moses where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And I think when Paul says this, he flips the the tables on them and shows them and shows me that so often i think we approach god with the wrong attitude god you why who are you to do this oh he's the creator and sustainer of the universe who 
who are you to tell him what he can or can't do? What we need to have is a heart of humility. Lord, would you be merciful to me? Lord, we need your mercy. That you don't, you don't bless me because I'm worth blessing. You bless me because you're a God who's very merciful and very kind and very compassionate. It's based on his nature. He's not responding to who I am. He goes from this and sees a line of reasoning. Well, if God's so sovereign, he's in control and we don't have any say, then, then what's the point? You will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who will resist his will? Like we have, we, I, we have no say in the whole matter. And he continues with this, this image. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Be careful, little one. Be careful who you're speaking to. You're speaking to the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who gives you life, the one who's given you all things or not given you things. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God... Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. He paints this picture of a potter, one who works with clay. As he tells his story, the Jewish people would know the story from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, the first 12 verses. The, the prophet Jeremiah was told, go to this hill and look and, and see. And there was, there was this potter. And the potter is doing what potters do, you know, making their stuff, the wheels spinning. And, he, and, the, and Jeremiah sees that the clay that's in the potter's hands is stubborn and it's not it's not doing what the potter wants. And so the potter basically starts over and tries to get it to run again and, and it won't run. And eventually the clay is gone bad. So the potter sets it aside and he lets the sun bake it and harden. And the, the potter basically destroys it. It's useless to me. And then God tells Jeremiah, this is what my chosen people are doing. They've hardened their hearts to me. And so destruction will come. Wrath will come. And this is that warning to Pharaoh, like kind of backing up that there's a concern here. If your heart's towards, if your heart is hardened towards God, I would confess that because we see that as we resist God, as Pharaoh did, that God is gracious. But there comes a point when you become so hardened that God's like, I'm not going to fight you anymore. If you want to be hardened, I'll help the hardening process. And one, one theologian from the old days made the observation that with the same, sun, the same sun that softens butter also hardens clay. And so our attitude towards God can affect what God's, how we respond to God. And now Paul brings up this story of the potter saying, if you're the clay being formed, can the clay look back at the potter and say, why are you making me into a fancy vase? Well, he goes the other way. Why are you making me into a cereal bowl? Common use. I'm special. I want to be a a very expensive vase that goes in very nice palaces that nobody can touch and kids aren't allowed to play ball around. I want to be that. And, and he's, Paul's like laughing, like, does the clay tell the potter what to do? The potter can do whatever he wants to the clay. I don't know about you, but this like just rubs me the wrong way. I am so stubborn and so strong will. Uh, you could, I mean, Anna, Grace got sick, so they went home. But I was going to say, man, you could just ask her how stubborn I can be. God's done a work in my heart of like, break, like really breaking me. But there's this resistance. Who does God think he is? I mean, it sounds so funny asking, who does God think he is putting these constraints on me? Well, I answered my own question. He's God. He knows better than I know. And as he addresses this, I'm going to come back to this, but, but, but he, he says, even us whom he called not from the, among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And this was radical uh, to, the, to the Jewish thought. 
I mean, they knew that there was one God and God was all over all, but they thought there was sort of like a special track for the Israelites and then there'd be the other track for the Gentiles, but they wouldn't be commingled. And so now they're commingled. And Paul says, not only from us Jews, but among the Gentiles also. Look what Hosea said. I love the book Hosea in a weird sort of way. I don't know why. Some of you might not know the story of Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet. Good guy. Love the Lord. He is single man. Like, like most single men, single men pray for a good godly wife. God heard his prayers and said, I'll give you a wife, Hosea. But there's a, I'm going to throw you for a little loop because your wife is going to be a prostitute. And I need you to go marry that prostitute and to love her. And Hosea did. Poor guy. So he marries this prostitute. And Hosea was this prophet that his life's prophecy wasn't about what he said. His life was going to be made an example to show how God feels about his people. And so Hosea marries Gomer, the prostitute. They have a child. Then they have two more children. Well, actually, Hosea didn't have two more children. She went back to the old business. She had two children through that vocation. And Hosea was told, you keep loving her. And basically, he takes these children as his own. And God says, this is the picture, how I feel about my people. My people, Israel, they keep turning their backs on me. They keep going and serving false gods. And the way I feel about it is how poor Hosea feels about his wife. And there from Hosea, what he quotes, listen to what he quotes. I will call those who were not my people, my people. Those people who were not Israel, God says, those are my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And so you see God saying, okay, these were my people. But they responded, and so they're going to become my children. It's this beautiful picture. And then he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be like sands of the sea. So he says the sons of Israel are outstanding. They're, they're infinite. You can't count the sand of the sea. It is the remnant. So within all of the sea, there's a small portion, this remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly and just as isaiah foretold unless the lord of the sabbath had left us to posterity we would have become like sodom and would have resembled gomorrah so paul says listen this idea that the gentiles are being brought in is nothing new the 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 prophets of old knew about it god is sovereign he's in control and you need to submit to him and, and trust him and to me, when I look at the story, a, a, a part of application from this, the idea that God is in control and is in charge and can do whatever he wants rubs me the wrong way as a stubborn person. I, I've also seen that it's my, my, my feeling of this has changed over the years. See, the gunner prior Christ, prior to growing in my faith of the Lord, growing to understand how in his sovereignty he works out, as Paul writes in Romans 8, all things for those who love him. What does it say there? Um, 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. We always think that these are good things. Some of you know me. Some of you don't know me. But I was born out of wedlock. My dad used to always joke. Well, he still probably, he still does. I was the greatest accident that ever happened. My name's Gunner. Always the joke was, oh, you're, you're the true son of a gun. Uh, well, we won't get into the whole son of a gun thing, but basically like a father would go to a guy and say, you're going to marry my daughter sort of thing. And so that was a big joke. That was my sort of upbringing. Then my dad left the scene because my, my biological mom was extremely abusive and an alcoholic. It was horrible. And eventually at 11 and a half, almost 12 years old, I had to testify against her in court before the judge. Like to her face, I had to get her to snap in front of them so that I could be removed from the home. I did that. And this created in me, and she was a religious lady. And that 
religious side created this animosity towards God. How could he do this to me? If there's a loving God, have we all heard? If there's a loving God, then how come this? I mean, I don't know. I've answered that question totally. But when we start looking at the sovereignty and we start looking at our world and we start looking at our life situations, it's easy to get angry. And I was an angry person. Like I joined the Navy because I needed to feed myself. I knew that there was a way that I needed to provide peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for me because I was going to get kicked out of the house. But then there was another side of me that was just so angry. During workouts of, of, of training, that deep within me was longing for this time when I could go be a seal and I could just wreak havoc on somebody. That I could let my anger out on somebody else. It was going to feel so good because justice would be served somehow in my warped sort of thinking. Then I became a Christian. And then, you know, a few years ago, I had this revelation that sort of dawned on me in the weirdest sort of way. For those of you that know me, you know, I tend to get kind of choked up quite a bit. Like I cry and I watch Little House on the Prairie. I can see a commercial about Little House on the Prairie and I start crying. Something within me causes me to cry now and I don't get it. I wasn't always this way. I can barely do a wedding without crying. And there I was in Mongolia, and there was this big thing for a missionary leaving. And there were about, I don't know, maybe like four families. And they started having, it, was, it wasn't like a big display like this. You're around a table in a freezing country, and they just started trying to sing songs that they knew. And so they started singing Jesus Paid It All. And then I put my head down trying to look like I was like worshipful, you know, but the reality was, is I was trying to hide my face because I was just bawling like a baby. I couldn't even sing the words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It's beautiful. And I didn't hear audibly, but I sensed from the Lord in that moment, him saying, I've taken all of your anger and bitterness and I've given you tears instead. And so I don't tell this story. I, I tell this to sort of, if you'll go with me to Rome, to Acts chapter 17, I'm going to end. Understanding the sovereignty of God and grappling with it, we, we don't like dealing with feeling like it's unfair. And so the first thing we need to recognize is sovereignty is a big word, right? That means God is in control. He reigns. There are a bunch of other words that describe God's character. We, we, we need to remember his loving kindness. He's merciful. Um, He's gentle with us. All of these things to remember who he is. We know from 1 Timothy 3 and 4 that God desires all people to come to salvation. We know from uh, 2 Peter 3, 9 that he's slow about his wrath because he's patient with people that they would would come to know him. We know he desires all people to come to salvation. He is working harder and greater to, to move people to faith in Christ, to conform you into Christ's image than you could possibly imagine. And the light sort of changed with me, dealing with sovereignty and looking at my own life. And this passage isn't about my own life. But I sensed that the Jewish believers were grappling with what is God doing to us? We're his chosen people, yet we're scattered. We get kicked out of Rome, now we come back. And now we're, we're told that Israel means nothing. What's going on here? So I identify with those feelings. And then Paul's words in Acts 16, in verse 24, the story goes, Paul enters into Greece. As he enters into Greece, he sees all of the idols to various gods. He sees one that was made out to the unknown God. So he stands up before all the philosophers and he says, hey, I noticed all of the, the, the gods that you worship. I want to talk to you about this one over here that was made out to the unknown God. I want to tell you about this unknown God. And in verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it, Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He starts out with saying, this God is bigger than all of your other gods. He's bigger than the world. In fact, he's outside of all creation because he is the creator of all things. Everything that's in the world, he created. He doesn't dwell in our temples that were made with hands. He is outside of all this, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things paul introduces a very big god this is god he is muy grande he is beyond our comprehension 
Then he says in verse 26, the point of where I'm going. He says, and he, that's God, made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he starts from Adam. He goes all the way through history, every person that's ever existed, and he says that God has has determined when they would come into existence and geographically, literally, where they would live. Bless you. My whole life, I've been told I was an accident. Best accident that ever happened to my dad, but I was an accident. But then I read the scripture, I was no accident. It was no accident that I was born in the year that I was born, that I, that I lived in the geographic location that I was born into, that, I, that I've had boundaries, that I've been able to, to travel the places of the world that I've traveled, that these boundaries that have been placed on me were not accidental. They were very specific, very intentional. Every one of us have been placed in these boundaries for a specific purpose, and that's verse 27. Notice what it says, that they, that's us, would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. So, so this, is the whole, this is the whole of everything. This changed my whole understanding of childhood. The experiences that I went through. Now I give thanks to God for those things. Why? Because I realize how stubborn and hard-headed I am. If he just put me into a different situation, I don't know that I would love God with, with what I love him with today. So I'm able to, to, to look back and say, you know what? Thank you, Lord, for giving me my mom. Thank you for giving me those hard times. I, certainly you did not intend sin, you, but you used this to bring me to the place where I would humble myself before you and give you my life. That's what he's doing with Israel. He's not done with Israel or seeing. And I can guarantee you that whatever you're going through right now, whatever strain, whatever trial, whatever circumstance is weighing you down, or whatever circumstance you're rejoicing in. They're not accidental. God has placed you in this earth with your life in your sweet spot that you might find him, that you might walk with him, that he might conform you into his image. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. Um, that you are God and we are not. And Lord, I confess that so often I look at my life, I look at circumstances, and it's so easy for, for me and my heart to sort of point my finger at you and ask, what in the world are you doing? Lord, I pray that you would change that attitude in our hearts, that we would trust in you, Lord, that as we go through good times and bad times, that we would allow you to guide us, Lord, that we would trust you in all things. Father, we pray for the Israelites, Lord. We thank you for Israel. We thank you, Lord, for how you've worked in and through them over the course of history. Father, we pray that as we navigate these few chapters, that you would help us as a church to understand how it is that we should relate to Israel and to Israelis. Father, I do pray that you would place a love in our heart for the Jewish people. Lord, that they would come to know their Messiah. Father, we do love you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.